I'm Laura Bonnell, and this is the Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast coming to you from Detroit. Please subscribe and even rate and comment on our podcasts when it moves you. I learn something new with every podcast, and I'm always inspired by the people that are showcased here. We don't give medical advice. You need to connect with your doctor for that. I hope that this Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast educates you and sparks some volunteering or advocacy. The CF community needs people like you. Thanks to our sponsors, Beatrice, Genentech, and Vertex for their support. Susanna McCauley is a pediatric pulmonologist whose research focuses on improving the health of people with cystic fibrosis through understanding health disparities, improving methods of screening and diagnosis, and testing new treatments. And she leads a multidisciplinary team of clinicians, community members, and public health professionals to improve the timeliness and equity of CF newborn screening. She's also passionate about supporting the next generation of researchers, especially those underrepresented in the biomedical research workforce. She does so much work that I can only mention a little bit of it, but you can see it all in show notes. Dr. Susanna McCauley is delightful. I've met her in person before. I love her energy. I love her motivation. And I love everything she's doing for the CF community. And glad she is part of this very special community. So I'm happy to now introduce you to Susanna McCauley. Dr. Susanna McCauley, thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to have you on our Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast. Well, Laura, I want to thank you. Um, It's such an honor to be here. I'm really excited about and supportive of all the work that you do with the Bonnell Foundation. And I'm just excited to talk about our mutual interests and um, the work that we've been doing to promote equitable diagnosis and treatment in cystic fibrosis. I agree. And, you know, I met you at the CFRI conference in California, and there's one part of your talk, and I am summarizing here, so it might not be exactly what you said, but you can correct me if I misspeak at all. But I like when you talked about white privilege briefly, because we are both white, and we don't experience the same thing as people of color. And I thought it was really important that you said that, And so I liked the thought of starting off that way. And I wanted to hear everything that you are working on as far as the underdiagnosed population. And I first wanted to know, you know, why you decided to become a doctor, you know, and work with CF patients and then how it morphed into all the incredible awareness that you're doing. Yeah. Well, I'm going to start with you know, the way I started my discussion at the Cystic Fibrosis Research Institute conference, which is really my positionality. And part of that is I am a white woman and I am cisgender and I am heterosexual. And privilege is really being able to um, go through the world without additional scrutiny or with assuming that by your own characteristics, you are the sort of normal. Um, And people who uh, differ, you know, people who are not white um, 
or are of different ethnicities, even if their race is considered white. Um, and so I'm, I, I have European ancestry. Um, so I am not a Latina, for example. And even in biomedical research, you know, white is often considered the standard to which other groups are compared, including in health disparities research. So my positionality um, as a white person who also grew up in a family that always had food on the table with two college-educated parents gave me a lot of opportunities um, in my life, and it gives me opportunities still. So I'm a baby boomer, and I grew up at a time of both uh, civil rights and women's rights, you know, uh, starting kindergarten um, in the 1960s and graduating high school in 1979. And this was a time of a lot of empowerment and recognition that women could be uh, professionals um, and could get doctoral degrees. And I was, you know, I will freely admit it, I was kind of a nerdy kid. I liked to read. I loved science. But I'm also a people-oriented person. I have five siblings. Um, was in a lot of activities in school. And I thought medicine, something where you can use science to help people, was a, a good career. And I was very fortunate because I was admitted to a combined bachelor's MD program when I was still in high school. As a high school senior, there was a program at Northwestern University that I applied to. Now, the why cystic fibrosis is a pretty complex story because. When I was growing up, I first heard of cystic fibrosis through my parents. They belonged to a babysitting circle where parents would watch each other's kids so they could go out, you know, as couples or with friends to avoid the cost. And sometimes the kids would get together, too. Mm -hmm. So they babysat for twins who had cystic fibrosis. And so that's the first time I heard of it. And they explained some basics about it to me. and they used to go can, which was, you know, in the early days of the CF Foundation, um, having cans and, and standing on a corner or walking around and asking people for spare change was a fundraising mechanism. Hmm. I also had a neighbor who had cystic fibrosis. She was just a year younger than me, and um, she died um, at age 12. So, uh, these were initial experiences that made me interested in this, you know, terrible disease that made kids so sick. When I was in medical school, um, I was drawn to pediatrics, particularly because for me, helping children survive and thrive is the only pathway to healthy adulthood. And I also just like kids. Um, kids are honest. You can play with kids. Um, I felt very comfortable in pediatrics. But I also thought I might want to do a subspecialty. I might want to really focus on something, the idea of being a generalist and having to know everything, including when to refer and when to watch, um, seemed overwhelming and less of an opportunity to do research. During medical school, I rotated through the Cystic Fibrosis Clinic at Children's Memorial Hospital which was run by a uh, gastroenterologist. And that was sort of an early point where I said, wow, at, at the time, 
you should know the gene defect that causes cystic fibrosis had not yet been discovered. They just discovered that there was a problem with uh, the transport of chloride, you know, half of sodium chloride salt mm -hmm. through the sweat glands um, and in other CF cells. So they were on the hunt for the underlying cause. But foundationally, I just enjoyed the multidisciplinary nature, um, the comprehensive approach and the kids and their families. And so then during my residency at Johns Hopkins, I was mentored by the Cystic Fibrosis Center director, Beryl Rosenstein, and I decided to uh, make that into my career focus as a pediatric pulmonologist. Well, we're all very glad that you did do that and that you are in our CF community, a huge part of our CF community. And, you know, living in Detroit, we're the auto capital. We have General Motors. We have Ford and Chrysler. And I would like to say that I think you are, for me, one of the big three. I think of you. I think of Dr. Jennifer Taylor Kauser. And I think of Dr. Megan McGarry as the big three doctors. I mean, there are so many wonderful doctors, but I can't even tell everyone how impressed I am with all the information that is in your head and that's in your, you know, those are your friends as well. And so much knowledge that you have. How do you all work together and work to get all this awareness out about everything that affects the CF community? Yeah, well, first of all, um, thank you very much uh, for uh, naming me <laughs> um, with <laughs> those wonderful friends and collaborators of mine. And I also, I, I want to acknowledge that there have been lots of pioneers in cystic fibrosis who were at the bedside of children who were dying, um, the people who pushed through uh, some of the clinical care advances even before we knew the genetic cause. But in terms of working with Dr. McGarry and Dr. Uh, Taylor Kauser, we worked together because we met each other and recognized how aligned we were in our interests and values. And so um, intentionally uh, set out to work together with both research and other activities and we all have a very strong lens on equity in clinical care, equity in diagnosis, equity in treatment. I am the oldest of this group of uh, women. Um, and so I was early on, you know, involved in some of the CF clinical trials for new medications. Dr. Taylor Kauser works quite a bit and has led many of those studies. And she's trained in both pediatrics and internal medicine, so works in the adult space. Dr. McGarry, I actually met when she was still in training and she had a poster um, regarding people with CF who are Hispanic or Latinx and about decreased health outcomes. And that's something that I had studied and published some papers on, we have a very large uh, Latino CF community in Chicago. And so I stopped to talk to her and became one of her early mentors. And now we are collaborators and have done a lot of work together. 
but very much focused on improving care and on defining um, differences in health outcomes that some people call disparities. But when they're related to the way a system is, that's an inequity. Mm -hmm. That's a disparity that occurs because um, the system for diagnosis and treatment has actually made choices that exclude some of the health benefits for people who are from minoritized and marginalized backgrounds. And I want to get into that. And I also wanted to say, so I started my foundation in 2010. And I have to say, I was always conscious of making sure that in our portraits of cystic fibrosis calendar, that it was represented with a person of color, be that an African-American person or, you know, someone from the Hispanic community. But I have to say, I did not realize they were underdiagnosed at that time. It's only been, I don't know, maybe the last six years. I feel like our whole community is very slow to get the word out there about how underdiagnosed, you know, people of color are in the CF community. I think we're all doing a much better job of it now. More and more people are becoming aware and, you know, low and middle income countries are feeling, you know, the same situation. But tell us about those health disparities and how it's hopefully gotten a little bit better since you started, you know, working to raise awareness. Yeah, well, it's really an interesting story. It goes really back to 1938 when Dorothy Anderson, a woman pediatrician who is also a pathologist at Babies Hospital in New York City, defined uh, cystic fibrosis of the pancreas. When kids had CF before then, they thought it was a really severe form of celiac disease because there's malabsorption of food. And it was really thought that the bad lung disease came from malnutrition. And if you look at um, low and middle income countries, you know, there's a lot of pneumonia, there's a lot of malnutrition. And so this may mask uh, CF in some areas of the world. But she described very clearly Black and Hispanic children with cystic fibrosis in that original report. Uh, Dr. Taylor Kauser uses a slide that she's highlighted some of the language in it. It's not the language that we currently use, but it was very clear from the outset. So then as time went on, much of the research was done in richer countries, um, in the United States, in uh, Western Europe. And people started using this language of the most common uh, fatal genetic disease in white people or Caucasians was used a lot, which is a very inaccurate term that has some historical um, negativity associated with it because it was really um, felt to be a, it's a eugenics term, actually, when you go back to the history of the term. But it drifted to people using this language of, you know, most common fatal genetic disease in the wider Caucasian population. There was much more research done. And when the gene defect was found, which was a really um, novel way of doing genetic research at the time, the most 
common gene defect. Um, it was only present in 70% of people, but F508-DEL, um, which, you know, it's the most common uh, gene defect in all populations in the United States. Um, it just occurs less in some populations than others. But this is clearly a gene that arose in Europe. You know, that you, there's genetic anthropology that's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. But somehow, and to some extent, this is a problem in the way medical school teaching and tests have been done historically. And this is getting better. But, you know, they would say it's more common in white people. And then the, on the test, it's a white person. Um, and there is this association that may be um, implicit or maybe explicit of cystic fibrosis with white people. I did a research study as a resident that I finished when I was a uh, fellow at Johns Hopkins. We had a large population of people with CF who were Black, children with CF who were Black, and some adults too at that time because they didn't separate out the centers until the 1990s. And my mentor, Dr. Rosenstein, who I mentioned earlier, he thought, you know, there were some phenotypic differences in the disease profiles that patients had. As you know, Laura, some people have more uh, gastrointestinal side effects or more diabetes. You know, some people have diabetes, some people don't. Some have more right. GI complications than others. Some people have to take enzymes to digest their food. Uh, some don't. You had a recent guest on who talked about that. So I did this research study, like comparing the black children to like two matched white children to see if there were differences. And there actually were some disease differences. And during the time we were doing that study, we um, F508-DEL was described and we postulated that there might be a difference in gene variant distributions that accounted for some of the phenotypic differences. Now, this gets into really shaky ground um, because race is a social construct, but people come from all different parts of the world. You know that humans first evolved in sub-Saharan Africa, which has the most rich genetic diversity in the world still. And then as there's migration to other parts of the world, there are changes in the genome. Some are adaptive. You know, CF variants seem to be, if you're a carrier, that seems to be protective against cholera, which is still a worldwide infectious disease problem. So we uh, are always very careful to say race is not genetics. But nevertheless, this was our hypothesis. Um, and it ended up being true. And that has been shown, you know, in a number of publications going back now 20 years, looking at the gene variant distribution in white non-Hispanic people in this paper I'm thinking of specifically in the United States compared to Hispanic and Black people with CF in the United States. So um, we've known this for a long, long time. And still there's this you know, white disease and also an emphasis on gene defects that are ancestrally from Europe in diagnostic and newborn screening at what we call panels, you know, genetic tests that look for specific gene variants. So that's kind of how we got from 
this disease occurs in every population back in 1938 to uh, the more recent misunderstanding that perpetuates this idea that CF is a white disease. And I just keep talking to more and more people that are diagnosed late. I just did a podcast with Rena Barrow and, you know, her fourth child was misdiagnosed because of newborn screening because it didn't have her mutations and it delayed care for four months and she had to demand a sweat test. This was three years ago. And every week almost um, I hear about some person of color who is misdiagnosed. So the newborn screening, we have a lot of work to do. And it's very frustrating that it's different in every state. So Yes. You know, we're recording this during Newborn Screening Awareness Month. And I know Rena, uh, she has been a member of the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation's um, external racial justice working group, external meaning people who don't work at the foundation. They've had an internal group as well. And so the really striking thing with that is that she has an older son who was diagnosed before newborn screening. Mm -hmm. And if you have a child with cystic fibrosis and, you know, it's the same parents, which it was, then one in four children is statistically going to have cystic fibrosis. And so every sibling should be tested, even if they have a negative newborn screening test, because there can be false negative tests with any screening test. So the over-reliance on a newborn screening test for a baby who's got a 25%, we call it a pretest probability, but there's a 25% chance that he's gonna have this disease that otherwise is about one in 4,000 people in the United States. I mean, that's a huge increase. So this is the misunderstanding that we are really trying to get out there um, in the work that we're doing to educate and make people aware. And at the same time, and you mentioned this, we want to make sure that all of the U.S. states understand how differences in the choices that they make on how to look at gene variants that cause CF in their newborn screening panels can make a big difference in who has a positive test and gets the early diagnosis. So I'd like to back up for a second just so that all of the listeners understand how newborn screening happens mm -hmm. and where variation in what states do makes a difference. So the first test that's used for CF newborn screening was discovered in the late 1970s um, and was when some of the early states that did newborn screening, which were Colorado and Wisconsin, they tested only this until the gene was discovered. So uh, it's called immunoreactive trypsinogen. It's a pancreatic protein that when the pancreas is inflamed is elevated in the bloodstream of a newborn. And so babies with CF have a pancreatic inflammation in utero. And so that's elevated. So if that is high, 
then genetic testing gets done. And in most states, you have to have at least one variant uh, of the CFTR gene detected for that to be called a positive screen. Now, I'll also say just as an aside that where that threshold for the IRT is also varies between states. Many listeners may not understand that states decide what they're going to screen for and how they're going to screen for an inherited disorder that's been shown to have benefit of early diagnosis and treatment. So those are the criteria for newborn screening. A baby who looks healthy, but where treatment before symptoms really start, and sometimes that's within days, by the way, Mm -hmm. but early treatment makes a difference in outcomes. And so we know that for CF based on some really rigorous research, including a clinical trial of newborn screening done in Wisconsin. And I wanted to say, too, for example, in Michigan, we test for 66 of the 2000 mutations. In other states, they may only test for four. And every state is different, which seems nuts to me because there's no consistency in diagnosis. And it just no surprise Most of the testing is done for the most common mutations. So it's mostly white people are getting diagnosed. People of color, Hispanic community, Arabic community are not getting diagnosed correctly. And then if every state would listen to us, if we want to just talk finances, just money, the cost of misdiagnosed or a child who isn't even diagnosed is more costly to everyone, the insurance company, the state. So it just makes sense that they would just put all the mutations on there. But I know there's arguments about, oh, it's too expensive. I don't know how it could be. It seems like to me that it's more expensive not to include all the CF mutations and then you could catch it right away. And in Rena's case, her son also had symptoms on top of the fact that there was another sibling with CF. So it's mind boggling to me that it's so hard to get the states to add the mutations to the newborn screening. Yeah, well, it is quite complicated. First of all, I agree with you. The cost of not diagnosing promptly is very high and One of the things in our society is we think about the healthcare costs and we don't think about the total societal costs. So what could that person do in their lifetime to be innovative? Uh, You know, contributing to the economy is one thing, but making changes in the world is another thing. So we never even take that into consideration, but we certainly know of babies who were missed or uh, diagnosed late in spite of having an abnormal newborn screening test who are months in the hospital, who are in the intensive care unit, who uh, require gastrostomy tube placement for supplemental feeding because they're malnourished. So these are all things that affect the healthcare system. Um, Public health and the healthcare system itself tend to be funded through different allocations and budget lines. You know, we have to think holistically about prevention versus treatment. So there are all kinds of things that contribute to that. But I did want to share. So the newborn screening is done with 
tests that have been approved by the Food and Drug Administration, um, mostly. And most states do use what you'd call a panel that has, uh, Michigan is 66, Illinois, where I live, is 77 currently. Hmm. There are panels that go up to 139 variants. When we looked, uh, Dr. McGarry and I uh, collaborated with some other folks who work on newborn screening and CF and published a paper about a year ago that we looked at nine common variant panels. And we found that to detect one CFTR variant, and we looked at all the people in the CF Foundation registry, looked what their gene variants were. So that's who we know has CF from different um, backgrounds. So only 66% of Asian people with CF in the United States would be picked up by newborn screen. 78% of uh, Black babies, 86% of Hispanic babies, 95% of babies uh, described as white. And this is all from the CF registry where they use the U.S. Census race and ethnicity definitions, which are lacking in many ways, but that would be very complicated to talk about during this hour. Um, but anyway, we know we're going to miss a lot of babies that way. And so the other thing that goes into that is that when you have two variants detected on the newborn screening, the primary care doctors in the public health laboratories generally say, wow, this kid almost certainly has CF. There can be mix-ups and blood spots and other rare things. And that baby gets diagnosed very quickly. They're sent right away to a CF center. When there's one variant detected, a lot of people say, well, probably just a carrier. And they'll even say to the parents, probably just a carrier. You should get it checked out. But, you know, mm -hmm. no urgency. Don't worry too much about it. So that babies, you know, who are not, not you know, the white non-Hispanic, don't like double negatives, but babies from these other groups, they're diagnosed later. Um, and that's associated with worse nutritional outcomes. And that the poorer nutrition starts early. So we found in another study that was just recently published that the earliest diagnosed kids who had an average, you know, of their first time seeing a CF center about 10 days of age were had better height and weight in the first year of life. And then the height was still better at five years of age in that group compared to kids who were diagnosed about six weeks of age. Wow. And so that's important. And, and you know this because of your personal uh, knowledge of CF. People with CF who are uh, heavier and taller live longer. That's been known since the 1980s. That research came before the discovery of the CF gene and um, to a great extent until recently had more impact on people with cystic fibrosis thriving and living longer. That big focus on nutrition. So to take that away from uh, babies when it can make all the difference is really um, chilling. 
There's another way to do uh, genetic testing, and that's being done in Wisconsin and in New York. And fortunately, this is an active area where people are working on improvements. So there may be other places that are implementing it. It's called next generation sequencing, and it's a method by which you can look at any sequence variation or what people used to call mutations in a gene. But the platforms allow you to just define those variants that are known to cause disease. So you mentioned 2000 described variants um, in the CFTR gene earlier, but for a long time, um, it was in the high 300s, maybe 400 that were defined as disease causing. In April, a group called uh, CFTR2 which looks at gene variants and phenotypes, in other words, what signs and symptoms people have, Mm -hmm. and expanded that to over 700 variants that are clearly disease-causing. Okay. So in Wisconsin, where they were using a next-generation platform, they included more variants quite quickly, and now they're testing for all of them. I have to say that some people have a duplication or deletion of some of the DNA or nucleotides, components of DNA in the sequence. And they they actually, um, you can have CF that's due to those things. They can't be picked up with sequencing. And then there are people who have a private mutation. In other words, it's it's seen in a family and it's not described anymore. So you okay. can still miss some people, but it's going to go way, way down and it's going to be more equitable. Yeah, not at this rate. This rate seems like a lot to me. And I know you were starting also to talk about clinical trials and we learned about this. I mean, I would guess the general population learned about this a little bit more during COVID. Awareness was raised that people of color are not included like they should be in clinical trials. And then, of course, they were treated incorrectly in other cases. So there is a fear of participating as well. So there's a lot going on with clinical trials, but I wanted you to talk about those discrepancies too that you have seen and that you and your colleagues are trying to correct so that more people are participating and being asked to participate in clinical trials. Yeah. So as you note, there are a couple of things at play here. The United States and other countries have a history of um, really abuse of particularly Black people in healthcare and in biomedical research. So there are examples that go back to, you know, when the United States was a colony and when enslaved people were experimented upon by doctors, you know, by people in my profession. So that's a long history. There's also the both historical but ongoing issue of structural racism and worse economic opportunities and less private insurance in many minoritized communities that gives people unequal access to health care. And then there is a lot of bias in medicine. Um, I actually teach 
I co-developed and co-lead a course on uh, anti-racism in clinical and translational research um, at my university. There's a lot of history, and this is, you know, this is a 10-week course, which is 30 hours of classroom time, so we can't go through everything now. But because of those issues, and, and one of the most famous and most often talked about is the Tuskegee syphilis trials, where um, Black men in Alabama um, who were sharecroppers were basically lied to, there's no gentle term, to say that they would benefit by participating in research. It was a natural history study. And when treatment for syphilis became available, they were not treated. And a whistleblower for the U.S. government ended that study. When that study ended, you know, I was already like 11 years old. Hmm. I mean, this was within my lifetime. So the United States healthcare system and the United States biomedical research system has not been trustworthy to people from marginalized and minoritized communities. So we talk about trust, you know, mm -hmm. you may remember that old, trust me, I'm a doctor, you know. Right. I don't think the term meme was that actually existed when that was done, but, but there's, we have laid the groundwork for ongoing mistrust. There are many scholarly papers that show how you can improve recruitment from people who have valid mistrust in the system. Part of that is um, having more time for people to spend with them, development of relationships, having more clinicians and research staff members who look like members of the community who they're trying to you know, engage with to consider research participation. But of course, that is really far behind uh, compared to the general population as well. So people go into healthcare systems and they may not have a doctor, nurse, or research coordinator who looks like them um, in our country and frankly, in many countries. Mm -hmm. So this is something that needs to be looked at, not just in asking research sites to try and recruit, but to really look at the way that the healthcare system itself can be trustworthy and the way in which research teams can offer people a lot of time and information and can recruit people who look like the community of their patient population so that there is more participation. Is it now the other? Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no go ahead. I was just going to ask you if, if it's better now, but continue. Yeah, well, I was going to turn next to the issue of uh, the gene variant distributions and the CFTR modulator trials. And, mm -hmm. you know, just to disclose, I have been involved in the modulated trials as a site principal and investigator, and in some cases as the study principal or co-principal investigator since the phase three um, IVACAFTER studies, okay. um, which were completed, you know, well over a decade ago. Mm -hmm. And I remember at the time, a mom asking me, like, why are they studying patients who have this rarer CFTR variant, uh, G551D was the first trial. 
That, by the way, is a variant that almost certainly um, arose in Ireland. And it's because it's one of those that you can treat with one modulator medicine instead of a combination. But understandably, since F508 Dell is so prevalent, that was the one that, you know, everybody was. And, and still there are new medications being made for that. And because there's less F508 Dell in um, minoritized people with CF, they genetically are, have been less eligible for trials or for the medicines when they are, you know, commercialized and made available. So those are two separate things, um, but it really does go back to, and I think that public health newborn screening is similar. Let's focus on getting most people. Then we'll worry about the rest of the people. However, if there are some groups who are excluded by that approach, they're excluded from diagnosis, they're excluded from treatment, that's when it's not a disparity, it's an inequity because it's choices made to pursue medication or diagnostic testing that's going to benefit people from, in this case, the more privileged class. Right compared to those who are marginalized. And again, going back to something that you said during the conference, it was a bit of a different question that this man was asking you. But your response was, is that that one person's life of not being diagnosed? I mean, what if it was yours or what if it was your kids? Is that acceptable? And of course, you said it was not. So we have the capability. We can try and diagnose as many as possible, and we should do that. Yeah, I mean, that's really what we are working on. So I, I mentioned that I am leading a chronic disease education awareness project. I have uh, two different funding agencies who've collaborated in this, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, their chronic disease prevention branch. And then the Legacy of Angels Foundation, which is focused on improving newborn screening and cystic fibrosis and a neurological disease called Cravet disease. So we are really trying to take both a pragmatic, but also a really assertive approach here. So even if tomorrow all states said, we are going to implement next generation sequencing and detect all known disease-causing CF gene variants. And if they also said, we're going to make sure that our, our IRT levels are at the threshold where we have high sensitivity for not missing babies because of that, you know, that first step in the test. Mm -hmm. Even then, it would probably take a few years for everything to be set up because there is investment in new equipment. There's training of more staff members. There's getting the word out to um, pediatricians and birth hospitals. And there are lots of stakeholders. And so progress, even fast progress, can be implemented more slowly. So we really want people to be aware that, first of all, it's very common to miss one of those CFTR gene variants so that you get a test where you think like probably a carrier. But we know um, from other studies that about one in 10 kids who has only one variant detected actually will have CF because of all the different gene sequence variants that can occur. And then that babies who have signs and symptoms 
or certainly a family history need to be tested because we're going to miss babies. We're going to miss babies even if we catch all the known CF variants because of some of the different sequence variations that can occur, like I was talking about earlier. So we really want people to have a high area of vigilance. And anecdotally, um, my impression is that in our state, when kids have had a false negative newborn screening test, it actually takes them longer to come to the CF center because people rely on that newborn screening test. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's actually very common in a medical history for a baby to see like all newborn screening tests were negative, as if that's a statement that excludes 30 to 50 some disorders, depending on what state you're in. Right. So I think those are the things that we're trying to get out really quickly so that these situations where babies are so sick before they're diagnosed because they had a false negative test don't occur. So Rena's situation, um, situation with some kids we've cared for at my hospital. And it's different, too, because newborn screening is a blood test. And then, like in Rena's case, when her youngest was tested and she demanded that there was a sweat test done, that's the different test. And it was definitive the second time. And along with the symptoms, um, you know, her son was diagnosed. So before we wrap it up here, I wanted to ask you, is there more that you wanted to talk about or is there an aspect of research and people of color getting them more involved that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to touch on a couple of things. Um, first of all, there are many organizations working on this, but we know that parents are not very well informed about newborn screening, you know, during pregnancy or after their baby is born. Mm -hmm. Even I, you know, I'm a, I was a pediatric pulmonologist before I had my first child. And I knew about newborn screening, but I truly have no memory of anyone talking to me about it. They probably did. Um, I, I remember during my second pregnancy at that point, they recommended carrier testing for CF for everyone. And, and I remember opting in for that. My background is, you know, Scottish and Welsh, so pretty high prevalence of CF in that population. But I really don't remember much about that, even though I know it happened. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, there's been a big push in medicine in general for people to know their test results. And, I, and so I think that parents knowing about newborn screening, parents asking the doctors if there were any abnormalities on newborn screening tests, understanding and being proactive as you might in other testing that your child has is really important. We're trying to help amplify that. We also, you know, recognize that there are gaps that may occur in office practice. Um, we know that in some pediatric practices, it's sort of an administrative function to like call families and talk to them about newborn screening results, if particularly if follow-up testing is needed for an abnormality. So trying to think about their communication. Now, in terms of the other issue we've been discussing, which is looking at uh, representation in research, this is where it's just really important to 
get the experiences and input from members of communities who have been excluded or marginalized or for whom the healthcare system has not been trustworthy. So you know that I work with uh, Michelle Wright from the National mm-hmm. Organization of African-Americans with cystic fibrosis. I was also a member of the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation um, External Racial Justice Working Group. And so to really hear from people what their experiences are, what questions they have, what would allow them to um, consider participation if offered. One of the things that I've heard is that um, a lot of times research uh, staff will come in and they will ask someone about participation. They won't want to commit on that day. But I've heard people say, like, nobody ever comes and asks me again. Yeah. If this was someone who was trying to sell you something, you know, they would ask you again. Right. <laughs> Plus, you're you're bombarded in the beginning when you're first having a child or it's your first baby and you're pregnant or whatever. You're getting so much information. You do need to be asked again and you do need to hear information more than once. Yeah. And I think people often, you know, one of the things that really does benefit recruitment is that a physician or another, you know, practitioner, nurse practitioner who has an established relationship with the person who's being approached for a study is knowledgeable about it and can talk to them. I mean, I've had many patients in the past, and I don't recruit for studies that I'm leading, but I've also um, had the privilege of working with other clinical investigators at my workplace. So people will want to ask me, like, what do you think? You know, do you think this would help my child? What do you think the benefits are? And so I'm always very careful to say, you know, if it's a research study, we don't know the benefit. That's why we're studying it. We don't even know all the side effects. Mm-hmm. But talk to them in the context of why they might consider participating. So that makes a big difference. And then, you know, a lot of times healthcare these days is very rushed. It's very productivity oriented. And so people having time to take the time to really talk to people about a study, it's more limited, but that's something that we can do right away. And and that, as with so many things, an approach that would benefit someone from a marginalized community is actually going to benefit everyone. Like you're making it better for everyone while also making it more equitable Mm -hmm. um, in terms of giving people opportunities to participate. Absolutely. Everyone needs to be represented. Yeah. 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 And it's interesting because the Food and Drug Administration is actually really, um, they've got some recent guidances on this. I think that the drug companies for experimental drug studies are really starting to look at this more, that they are not offering, um, for example, funding to have community engagement input and there is still this tendency to have what's called competitive recruitment. So CF is a rare disease, and particularly when you go to gene variant-specific therapy and age group things. So they get a lot of sites, and they give everyone a guaranteed number of people that they can recruit. And then if you recruit faster, you can have more people enrolled. 
And that favors the person who is already reading about it, um, has more resources, can schedule a day off work to take their kid to a clinical trial visit. So that alone increases the disparity um, and inequity in clinical trial enrollment. So we've got a long way to go. But there are things that we can do to take action. And you're working on all of it. I appreciate all you have so much information and you're and you're involved in so many different things. So it's great to hear everything firsthand from you on kind of where we came from and where we're going and where we still need to go. So thank you for sharing probably just a quarter of what you have to say. I you know, I'm sure we could have gone on for hours, but I really appreciate you educating you know, everybody even more than they knew before. They've probably learned a lot of information here. Well, thank you, Laura. It's been such a privilege to be here and just, you know, have a conversation about these important issues and um, your commitment to equity, which, you know, as you pointed out, as we were getting started, it was your natural way of being. It's what from the beginning when you started the Vanel Foundation was like, you got to do it this way. You got to show everybody. You got to include people and, and the guests you have on your show as well uh, show that. So I think you and I are both continually reframing these things in terms of how can we make it better for everyone who has CF. And I just so appreciate that connection and collaboration. It's been a real privilege to be here with you. Thank you so much for for everything you just said. And right back at you, because I agree, you know, everybody has to work together. It's so important for this whole CF community. So thank you. Thank you. The original music in this podcast is performed by Kevin it's Allen, not complicated. who happens to have cystic we fibrosis. Got worries and fears. I know what got you frustrated, but loving you is so all right. This has been the Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast. For more information and to learn more about the Bonnell Foundation, Visit our website at thebonnellfoundation.org. That's the B-O-N-N-E-L-L foundation.org. This podcast was sponsored by Viatris, Genentech, and Vertex. It was produced by Jagged Detroit Podcasts. Follow our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.